0: to Why Are We So Restless, a podcast brought to you by Holy Trinity Anglican Church and the Center for Public Christianity. I'm Josh Shatra, the Executive Director of the Center for Public Christianity and theologian in residence at Holy Trinity Anglican Church. I'm also one of your co-hosts for this podcast. In a series of six talks, John Yates, the Rector of Holy Trinity Anglican Church, is going to address why we seem to be unsettled discontent and so easily distracted he's going to consider what's going on culturally and how it is forming us before inviting us to consider different ways to learn to attend to the world at the conclusion of john's talk i'll rejoin you along with my co-host and new city fellow alumnus micah vandergrift micah and i will be joined by a special guest to briefly reflect on what we have heard and discussed how it applies to daily life so stay with us for the second half of the podcast In today's episode, John presents several modern assumptions about happiness. He then critiques them and points us to a better way to pursue joy.
1: This morning, we return to our driving question, why are we so restless? By considering the the, the question or the topic of happiness. And I want to argue that we're restless because we pursue happiness in the wrong direction. So let me pray for us as, as we get started. Lord God, we ask that you would be present with us this morning, that by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in our midst, you uh, would shape our affections. That You would draw us to you uh, in love and longing. And that as you do, you would set us on the right path towards happiness, towards joy. You would show us how to inhabit time, as one of your creatures, that you would give us wisdom in an age of information, and that you would root us in this place. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So on March 18th, this was two weeks ago, on March 18th, Centenary University in Hackett, New Jersey, announced the creation of a master's degree in happiness studies. (laughs) University President Bruce Murphy explained that this will be, quote, an interdisciplinary program designed for leaders who are committed to personal, interpersonal, organizational, and societal happiness. Grounded in science and research, this new degree will study happiness and resilience to prepare graduates to make an impact in a wide range of fields. Happiness studies. So happiness, you probably know, is is a really big business, If you search happiness and self-help on Amazon, 60,000 products are instantly available. And this includes books such as How to Be Happy in 10 Steps, The Happiness Advantage, The Happiness Trap, and The Happiness Project 10th Anniversary Edition. Almost all of these works, almost all of these works make a series of profoundly important assumptions about happiness that reflect and are rooted in the the convictions of our culture. And it's worth taking a few moments to outline those assumptions as we seek to understand the ways of happiness that we, as followers of Christ, have absorbed, often unknowingly, from the world. So the first assumption is that happiness can be found in and through the world around us. Happiness can be found in and through the world around us. So at the heart of this belief belief is a conviction that the world is enough. We don't need a transcendent God in order to be happy. Now, of course, many happiness gurus and 10-step happiness plans include or allow for religion. Look at the research on happiness, and you cannot help but see that religious people are, on average, happier than non-religious people. However, very few in the happiness business these days are willing to say that our ability to be happy depends on the existence of a sovereign God. Allow for it, sure. Depend on it, no. Benjamin and Jenna Story are both professors at Furman And last year, they published a book entitled Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. I very happily uh, adapted the title of their book for the title for this weekend. I hope they'll forgive me. Uh, And this is a really fabulous book. And if you're interested in the history of ideas and how we got to where we are today as a society, I would encourage you to get a copy, read it carefully. It's called Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. Uh, one of the things that the stories emphasize is this first point uh, about finding happiness in and, through around, in and through the world around us. And the, the, They write that the daring assertion that gives Renaissance humanism its immense vitality is that the human world, the natural world, can be enough, an arena adequate to satisfaction of our longings, a world less fallen than the biblical story suggests. So the world can be enough. Uh, By the age of 16, Blaise Pascal was doing groundbreaking work on mathematics. 16. But the work for which he's most widely known today was just a jumble of disordered notes, journal entries, and personal reflections when he died at just 29 years of age. Uh, these uh, these journal notes and entries were collated and they were published under the title Pensées, which simply means thoughts. Now, I first read Pensées when I was in college and, and I was absolutely enthralled, uh, possibly because it's little bite-sized morsels and paragraph-long chunks of reflection. I still have my copy from those days underlined and annotated. And I rediscovered Pascal last year through Ben and Jenna uh, Silberstory's book, which draws heavily on Pascal's reflections. So in Ponce, Pascal writes the following, and he's sort of speaking on behalf of God. He he says, humans wanted to make themselves the center of their own attention and to be independent of my help. They took themselves away from my dominion and wanting to find happiness in making themselves my equal by finding their happiness in themselves. I left them to themselves. That is the state humanity is in today. They retain some ineffective inkling of the happiness of their first nature, and they are sunk in the wretchedness of their blindness and of their concupiscence, which has become their second nature. We're going to come back to Pascal in just a little bit. So the first assumption our society makes is that happiness can be found in and through the world around us. The second assumption about happiness in our culture is that it is individually defined. So... Most research into happiness uh, depends entirely on self-reporting, as people classify their internal state on a spectrum from not happy to happy. And Of course, that, that makes sense given just how difficult it can be to define happiness. But it also points to a deeper philosophical conviction undergirding modern life, which is the belief that no one else but you can define happiness for you. Now this, of course, it's connected to our society's beliefs about identity formation. If who we are is rooted in our heart's deepest desires, then the only way we're going to find happiness is by naming and meeting those desires. It's all very logical. But what do we do about the fact, I think obvious to many of us, that our hearts are these bottomless pits of constantly changing desire? Within the framework that the world has given us, there's nothing that can be done. We are consigned to a lifetime lost within ourselves. So if happiness really is individually defined, then we're going to spend our lives as nomads. We're going to spend our lives as nomads, wandering the vast expanse of our hearts, looking for a permanent home, but fated to carry a tent of meaning on our backs as we set up camp for a short while, only to move on when the next and newest longing takes hold. So think about it this way. If we're creatures made by God with certain limits given to us as gifts of creation, then to remove these limitations, it's not only to become alienated from God, it's actually to become alienated from ourselves. So what we so often think of as freedom or liberty or independence is actually oppressive. As strange as it may sound, if we were made to have limits as creatures, then this pursuit of happiness without limits is the spiritual and psychological equivalent of living in a cage. So the third assumption about happiness in our culture is that it must be individually pursued. So this is an important and necessary corollary of the last point. Because we're the only ones who can define what happiness means for ourselves, we must be the ones to bring it about for ourselves. So God or Shiva or meditation or some other spirituality might be involved in this, but we alone are the conductors of our own happiness orchestras. In this context, it's only the properly curated life that will ever be happy. So our goal as human beings is to put together the rightly proportioned mix of experiences, relationships, and and work to ensure our happiness. But because our hearts are fickle, fine-tuning then becomes the name of the game, and this leads us on the endless pursuit of fads and fashions as new delights tempt us with the promise of happiness. And here's what's really hard about this, is the greater your resources the farther down the rabbit hole you can go because you never exhaust all of the false leads that are out there. Uh, Alan Noble, who I referred to yesterday, he writes, the only limit to your identity is what society and your credit card will tolerate. And society will continue to provide options, so make sure to take care of your credit score. If happiness must be individually pursued, then you are responsible for making your own happiness. And this, we talked about this last night in the Q&A especially. This places an incredible weight on us from an early age. Not only do you have to figure out for yourself what it means to be happy, you then have to make it happen. Happiness is therefore always the product of your own personal choices. What this also means is that unhappiness will ultimately be your own fault. I do wonder, I wonder if that particular reality, uh, if this underlying psychological pressure has contributed to the growing numbers of people who identify themselves as victims of some kind, because it allows us to blame someone else for our unhappiness in a world that says it's all up to us. It's a topic for another time, though. So we have these three assumptions baked into our contemporary understanding of happiness. The world is enough to make you happy. You simply have to define it and then pursue it for yourself. So the question to ask is, are we happy? And I think the answer is no. Uh, In 1831, we're going to go back a little ways. In 1831, French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville traveled to the U.S. where he spent nine months touring the nation. He was interviewing and observing her people. And his reflections on this nation were printed in two volumes, appearing in 1835 and 1840. And the second volume in particular is among, it is among the most prescient and prophetic works ever written about America. Uh, In it, he comments on our pursuit of happiness and how this leads to our abiding unhappiness. And what he saw in 1831, I think, is still true in 2022. And this is what he says. You may have heard me refer to this before uh, in in a prior talk in a prior year, but this is what Tocqueville writes. In America, I saw the freest and most enlightened men placed in the happiest condition that exists in the world. But it seemed to me that a sort of cloud habitually covered their features. They appeared to me grave and almost sad even in their pleasures. The inhabitant of the United States attaches himself to the goods of this world as if he were assured of not dying. And he rushes so precipitously to grasp those that pass within his reach that one would say he fears that each instant he will cease to live before he's enjoyed them. He grasps them all but without clutching them. And he soon allows them to escape from his hands so as to run after new enjoyments. Death finally comes, and it stops him before he has grown weary of this useless pursuit of a complete felicity that always flees from him. I I mean, what a quote! Holy cow. So, what is our chronic discontent? Culturally, what does our chronic discontent tell us about ourselves? Well, I think most obviously it tells us that we probably need to examine the path that we've chosen down which to pursue our happiness. So in Pensees, Pascal wrote a lot about what he calls our wretchedness. Uh, And he says somewhat surprisingly, man's greatness lies in his capacity to recognize his wretchedness. A tree does not recognize its wretchedness. So it is wretched to know one is wretched, but there's greatness in the knowledge of one's wretchedness. What he means is that our discontent points to the hope of something more. Dissatisfaction testifies to the possibility of greatness. Our default happiness, it's not due to external circumstances. It's an internal problem a problem with human nature. So as Ben and Jenna's story say, the unhappiness that remains when such liberations have succeeded must have its source not in our laws but in ourselves. So the path to happiness through liberation is mistaken, and the problem lies deep within our hearts. So we spent the first half uh, of this talk uh, deconstructing happiness. And we're going to turn now uh, to the task of reconstructing happiness. And in order to do this, we need to return to the God who made us. Uh, After the last five weeks, those of you who are members here, you know we've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes on Sunday morning. So by now, you all know um, that under the sun, all is vanity. So as Pascal writes in Pensees, he says, Ecclesiastes shows that man without God knows nothing and remains inevitably unhappy. It's only once we look over and above the sun to find the one who made it that we can find meaning, and yes, happiness. So what's a biblical view of happiness? What is a biblical view of happiness? That is a tricky question. There are countless proverbs on happiness. The Beatitudes are about happiness, but there's not a go-to text that says, this is what happiness is, and this is how you find it. That's really all of Scripture. Uh, Instead, uh, there are patterns and there are practices throughout the Bible that lead us to the kind of joyful contentment that is the version, the biblical version of happiness. And I want to talk about four of these sort of patterns and practices. You can think of them as four points of a compass, four cardinal directions by which we orient ourselves and experience the happiness, the blessedness, the joy of Christ. So these these four patterns, practices, points on the compass are behold, receive, abide, and hope. And I'll be repeating those as we go. So the first is this behold. Behold. So we're going to go back to Genesis. How does it begin? In the beginning, God. Before there's anything, there's God alone. How does the Gospel of John begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the start of new creation, we begin again with God himself. Creation and new creation begin with beholding the God of the universe. So much of our contemporary society's search for happiness begins by looking at ourselves. That inward turn is like walking through the gates of a prison and then willfully locking yourself in a cell. The biblical approach to happiness begins by beholding the God who made you and falling down before him in worship. So I, I begin each day uh, by intentionally doing nothing. So I do not check my phone. I turn on the lowest of lights. And as I sit in the dark with a cup of strong English tea, in one of the comfortable chairs in our kitchen, I try my best to sink into silence. I, I hold back the awakening thoughts of my heart and the emerging preoccupations of the day, and I try simply to sit with God. I say, good morning. I tell him that he's worthy of praise. I thank him for loving me and for making me and for making the world I can see outside the windows. And then I try to sit still, not really talking, but simply trying to behold him in his glory. I think Pascal was right when he wrote in Pensee's, He said, I have often said that man's unhappiness springs from one thing alone, his incapacity to stay quietly in one room. That's amazing to me. He was 29, 30 when he wrote that. This is something I'm trying to learn how to do. I wonder, have you ever watched a, a couple that's been married for a long time just sitting in silence together? Happy older couples, they have this way of inhabiting silence together that is somehow communicative, affirming, and content. They're just happy to be in each other's presence. That's how I try to begin my day, beholding the God who made me by sitting quietly in his presence. And it's not just an exercise for early mornings. As, As the day goes on, our eyes are drawn to the mirrors, both real and metaphorical, all around us. Our thoughts are always pushing inward, becoming self-reflective. Our focus narrows down to the most basic forms of self-interest. And we have to be drawn out and away from ourselves to behold the glory of God. So how do we do this? Uh, There's so many little ways. Music, singing, Bible reading. Stopping in the middle of the day to take a walk with the sole intent of praising God for the things that you see along the way. So happiness, joy, contentment, it begins and it ends with beholding the God who made us. That's what creatures do, right? One of our problems as Christians, I think, is that we've unknowingly bought into the myth that happiness is available here and now apart from the reality of God. Of course, we believe in God, we trust him for our salvation, but when it comes to our happiness, day in and day out, we default to the idea that it's up to us. So we, we actually partition off our faith, and we make it mostly about eternal future realities. And we live as happiness-seeking humanists for most of the day. And in this context, love of God, it becomes a duty and sometimes a drudgery, but it's never a means to finding happiness. True happiness, though, begins with beholding, and that's true north. So the, the next point on our compass, let's call it south, is receiving. And again, we return to the creation narrative. So in Genesis 2:7, we're told that God breathed into the face of Adam, and, and Adam became a living being. God gifted him with life. Have you ever thought about the fact that every breath is a distinct and unique gift from God? Because you don't even have time to think about that, because I've taken five breaths since I said that. The air that we take into our lungs, it's not a right that we enjoy by virtue of existence. It's a gift. That's what it means, again, to be a creature created and dependent on the God who made us. The word for soul in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for soul, um, comes from the words, one of the words for breath. And the connection reminds us that our souls are a gift from God, moment by moment by moment. So the, the mode of the world, as Tocqueville observed, is to grasp and to consume, a clenched fist instead of an open hand. I talked about this two Sundays ago in the context of Ecclesiastes 5, and I want to return there briefly. So Ecclesiastes 5, 18 to 20, it's one of those uh, theological rest stops that appear a handful of times throughout Ecclesiastes. So the bulk of the preacher's reflection in Ecclesiastes takes place under the sun, according to the wisdom and reason available to all people apart from God. And every, every reflection, every avenue that he explores under the sun, it ends in vanity. He's constantly going down these dead-end roads. And, but in chapter 5, verses 18 and 20, uh, the preacher looks above and beyond the sun to the God who created all things. And here, in this beholding of the God of creation, he offers a, a meditation on happiness. And this is what he says. He says, behold In this paragraph on how to enjoy life, the main actor is God. And God's central action is to give. Just look at the verbs. The preacher, his main action is to receive and so to enjoy. The key to happiness, according to this man who explored every possible avenue of pleasure, is to receive the good things of God as gifts. When we see every good thing as a gift, we relish it as an unexpected, undeserved grace. When we try to purchase happiness or custom craft a a happy experience, we do come to believe that it's our right to be happy. We've paid for it, for goodness sake. But that's not so. God doesn't owe us anything. And yet he gives us all that we need. Kelly Capik writes, We live the majority of our time assuming God's absence rather than his particular presence. Not because he isn't there, but because we aren't attuned to his presence. We have disenchanted the world by emptying God out of it, as it were, making it flattened and depersonalized. Even as Christians, we often live secular lives. In order to see where God is at work, and establish a posture of open-handed reception in our relationship to him, we need to learn to cultivate gratitude an awareness of the particular presence of God at work. The regular practice of giving thanks, it turns us into observers of grace. We learn to look for it. And when you're looking for grace, it's amazing how often you see it. So, behold and receive. So north and south on our compass. And to the east is abide. Abide. So in John 15, Jesus reflects on the nature of true joy. On this night before his death, he says to his disciples in verses 9 to 11, he says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So the secret to happiness, Jesus is letting them in on the secret to happiness. And the secret to happiness, or to joy, as John records here, is abiding in the love of Jesus. This love, it can't be bought and it can't be earned. It's graciously given and must therefore be humbly received. And having received that love, we abide in it. We trust it. We rest in it. We find confidence in it. Uh, But how? Well, Jesus is clear. It's by obeying his commandments. So obedience is an expression of affection, and it's a declaration of trust. So we obey Jesus because we trust that he knows best. And as we obey, what we're doing is we are abiding. We're staying close and experiencing his joy. When we disobey, however, we wander. We distance ourselves from love and security. And we end up stumbling into fear, uncertainty, and often disaster. There's no happiness in disobedience. There may be momentary pleasure, but there's no happiness. But there is happiness in faithful submission. And that's what abiding is. So when you understand that you're a creature, going back to our first talk, when you understand that you're a creature with God-given limits and God-intended ways of being, when you understand that your identity is found in relationship to him, then you recognize the joy or the happiness in abiding and obeying. At the heart of learning to abide, is the realization that this is, this is a daily, hourly, moment-by-moment reality. That's because our tendency is to wander. We're like dogs on a walk. We just go off sniffing in the bushes. We, we constantly want to leave Jesus' side, strike out on our own, and when we do, we fall into disobedience. And we need consciously to return to his side as he returned to the side of his father and found joy even in the face of impending death. This was the day before he was killed. He's sharing these things with his men. So behold, uh, receive, abide, and then last of all, hope. Hope. And this is what we see when we look to the West on our compass. Moments after this reflection on abiding in joy, Jesus Jesus turned to the near-term future. And he gave his disciples a warning about what was to come, not just for him, but for them. So in John 16, 19, he says, he says to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He then continues in verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. He's continuing this meditation on happiness or on joy. This present time and these present lives are not all there is. Therefore, the joy that we seek and experience in this life is not and cannot be the fullness of joy. While society around us says, this is all there is, enjoy it while you can. The Lord says, hold out for greater joy. The true deep happiness for which you were created is yet to come. Yes, there is true joy in the present. But that joy is nothing compared to what we will experience when Jesus returns in glory. Much of life, much of life is filled with sorrow and with stress. We don't feel all that happy most of the time. I just finished reading a book about William Barents' 16th century expedition to the Arctic Circle. In the 1590s, he went three times to the Arctic Circle. It's an amazing story of daring and endurance. And on, on, multiple, on multiple occasions throughout the, his three expeditions into the Arctic, Barrents and his crew found themselves floundering among ice floes. And occasionally they would become encased in the ice. And when they became stuck, one of the ways they were able to break loose was by walking out an anchor, embedding it in a distant, stable iceberg, and then pulling the boat along toward the anchor over the ice. That was a lot of work. That, I think, is how hope works. It's an anchor that pulls us forward when we get stuck. And we have this idea for us in Hebrews 6.19 where the author writes, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So hope isn't just something you possess. Hope is something that you do. Not just something you possess, it's something that you do. It's an active, not a passive verb. One of the things that I find most attractive and most true about Christianity is its clear eyed assessment of the world in which we live. The world is astonishingly beautiful and at the same time shockingly ugly. Hope. What hope does is it allows us to be honest about the ugliness while remaining confident about the ultimate end and beauty of all things. Sometimes I think we as Christians forget this. Instead of admitting the ugliness, we naively say, oh, it's not all that bad. But remember, Jesus sheds tears over our death and rebellion. It is that bad. What hope is, hope is this form of godly discontent in a way. Because it allows us to name the ugliness around us without despising it and without losing heart entirely. One of the reasons we're so restless is that we're constantly pursuing happiness in the wrong direction. We need to reorient it as creatures to behold, to receive, to abide, and to hope. Those are the four points on the compass by which we begin to find our way down the God-given path to happiness.
2: All right. Thank you all for joining us again. We're here for another commentary and discussion on uh, John's series on Why Are We So Restless? I'm joined here with my colleague and co-host and friend, Josh Chetreau, uh, director of the Center for Public Christianity and lead teacher for New City Fellows, uh, resident theologian here at Holy Trinity. Um, Josh, good to see you again.
0: Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh,
2: Welcome our our friend, uh, Seth Berman. Uh, Seth, you want to introduce yourself?
3: Sure. Sure, sure. It's great to be here. Um, so, yeah, I'm in the Fellows Program, and uh, just a little bit about me. I'm a uh, father of uh, three beautiful kids and a uh, wonderful wife. And um, I'm a CEO of a, a small technical company, but I'm a uh, software engineer by trade, and actually, my hobby is, uh, writing software. Some of you may think that is cool and others very sad. It (laughs) depends on your perspective, but, but I happen to love it. And, um, that's, that's my story. Great to be
2: here. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're glad to have you. Uh, as as I mentioned our, our, topic tonight, uh, why are we so restless, uh, because we pursue happiness in the wrong direction, uh, so for those that uh, have you know, just uh, taken in the talk, uh, you heard uh, John give us uh, a, a sort of a compass, a layout, a, a way to approach uh, happiness that is uh, informed by uh, a faithful posture rather than uh, the posture that the world often uh, imposes on us. Um, so, Seth, let me ask you the first question. How do you approach happiness now? That might be different uh, from the way you did as a as a younger man.
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I would say, and this is probably pretty typical, that in my twenties and certainly thirties, uh, I didn't really have a family yet. I was all it was really all about uh, me and my career and um, wanting to, you know, climb the corporate ladder and, uh, you know, to to be the best that I could be. And, um, you know, that, that, uh, that's good, but, uh, I don't think those are the kinds of things that, that leave you happy. I, and it wasn't really till later till I got married and, um, I had a wife, a lovely wife who, who, um, such, has been such a blessing and a great compliment to me. Three beautiful kids that, you know, just raising them, how much you have to give as a parent. Um, seems kind of counterintuitive, but those are the kinds of things that I've found that really actually make me happy mm-hmm. um, in the long term so it's been been a nice journey to to do that
2: one of the um the points that that john's bring brings out in the talk is that um we tend to think that, uh, or we are sort of formed to think that we can find happiness in ourselves. And I'll echo what you just said for, for me, you know, uh, growing up or this, this period of life that we're going through right now, um, you start to recognize happiness, uh, or the, you know, the things that, that make life, uh, real, uh, and in places that you might not expect it uh, or might not have expected it, uh, as a, as a younger person. Um, Josh, what's how uh, how does how does happiness and contentment and uh, those other words, joy, how, do, how does this uh, reflect in, in your life and in your walk?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's a kind of paradox with happiness that on one hand. Well, I'll just say this to, to get off the bat and then I'll talk about the paradox, which is I do think happiness is something that as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about. In other words, I think that there can be kind of, if you start talking about, you know, the culture wants to be happy as a negative thing, like as a critique on culture, (laughs) all the culture wants to do is be happy. And And I'm just like, yeah, and what, of course, I think there's something about humans that want to be happy. That's part of human nature. Okay, let me get to the paradox. So, so number one, I would just say we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it that says, yes, there's something in us that deeply desires to be happy. But here's the, here's the paradox. If you pursue happiness as the number one thing, if you just say, how can I be happy? And then you go around and you, and you kind of say, I'm going to be happy by just pursuing pleasure here. I'll be happy if I you know get enough stuff. If, if, if that's the way you, if you're just saying, I want to be happy, let me go do it it doesn't work. (laughs) So there's this kind of, here's the paradox. The quickest way to be unhappy is to say, I want to be happy. And I want to, because I I was actually just talking to my son, uh, who's, who's eight at the time of, of, of this podcast. And he, um, we were talking about different choices and he was struggling to make choices. And he said to me, dad, I'm just so afraid if I pick the wrong choice, I won't be happy. And I said, well, son, you're you're focusing on the wrong thing. Don't focus. Don't think that like if you choose this over this, all of a sudden you're not going to be happy. If they're both good options, just choose one. But the biggest thing to focus on is, is my attitude of my heart is, is that pleasing to God? Is that obedient? And then we were talking about, you know, actually, as a Christian, our first question should be not, does this make me happy? But does this make, is, is this obedient? Is this pleasing to God? And, but I was explaining to him, once you do that. Happiness sneaks up on you. <laughs> so it's not saying happiness doesn't matter, but it's saying when you put yourself at the center and everything's up to you to kind of achieve happiness, it's the quickest way to not be happiness. And we were talking about, you know, from in the life of an eight year old, how this kind of plays out. But it, and, and then in the course of the conversation, we went to, yeah, how does this? Pl- how does this look for you, Dad? Do you struggle with this? And it was like, oh yeah, you bet. <laughs> In different ways. Um but but I, I th- there's the paradox. If you pursue happiness and that's and that's all that's said, it's the quickest way to become unhappy. Hmm. But if you pursue faithfulness, if you pursue God, then well it's it's Matthew six. Pursue his kingdom and all these other things. Will come, and so in some sense we can be freed up from having to worry about that, hmm. um, and that's like we can just trust God with that. Our big thing is obedience, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that happiness shouldn't be talked about. It's just this is the path to happiness is. The fear
3: of God is obedience to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, it's interesting you bring up your eight year old because my eight year old, (laughs) we were sitting in the uh, sitting in the hot tub and he he likes to do um, these little quick fire questions like, okay, ask me a question. Then you just answer as quick as you can. And so his question to me was, um, you know, kids, they, they don't see they see things in absolute. So his question was, would you rather be super poor but have lots of friends or really rich and no friends and so and, and this is this is the same thing I was thinking as you were speaking with like happiness it's like the point isn't to say that you shouldn't pursue I mean some of the things we were talking about uh, where I said you know climbing the corporate ladder and doing it's not that those things aren't you know worthy and they can bring some measure of earthly happiness but it's not the point point. and I think that you know as I listened to my son and I was trying to say, you know, in, for his question, it was like, let's kind of reframe mm. what we're talking about here. I mean, obviously the way you've presented it, it's, I'm going to tell you, you know, this versus that. But, and I think happiness can kind of be maybe thought of or talked about in the same way you were just saying, you know, I think happiness is, it's something that should be talked about, um, and something to strive for. But, but I think it's our orientation. It's not, you should, these things don't bring you happiness, but these things do. And you just got to know which ones to pick.
0: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. I really like the uh, the directional uh, metaphor that that John gives us in, in, in the talk. You know, it kind of a- lands on this this concept of a compass. Uh, and, you know, you you just said, or how do we orient ourselves? You know, so I was thinking about um In in America, especially, of course, we have this, uh, this concept ingrained in in us as of the the pursuit of happiness, like that we're chasing, that we're following, uh, happiness, which, which evokes movement, right? Um, so this, this new compass that, that John lays out for us, um, gives us uh i I, I think that it um that what he's asking us what he's presenting to us is the opportunity to pause right i'm thinking of you know we like to go hiking as a family i don't know how to use a compass very well but every once in a while i'll pull it out to show the kids and say hey look which which way are we going let's pause here uh and and orient ourselves so I'm, i'm wondering seth um What does it feel like in your family or maybe maybe in your professional life? What does it feel like to take that pause, to to feel and experience a pause um, in this rapid pursuit toward toward happiness or toward fulfillment?
3: Oh, man, that is something that I personally really struggle with. But I mean, I've certainly done it. And I and I will say that as I listened, uh, I think it was at the very beginning where John actually talks about how he gets up in the morning and has this time where he sits quietly and drinks his, drinks his tea. And, um, you know, what an important time that is. And I think, you know, later, as we discussed, you know, to behold part of our orientation. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, for, at least for me, that is something that, you know, that level of quietness is something that I really struggle with, but I think it just sort of, that stood out to me as something that, I really would like to put into practice. And I don't know if that's appropriate for everybody in their their schedules. But for me personally, that would be something that, that I think would just be so valuable and just just uh, to be able to be quiet like that. Um, that's not something that that I'm able to do uh, very, very easily, uh, especially in tech. I mean, it moves a million miles an hour. I manage a business. I'm a father with three kids. Uh, They're busy. I'm busy. <laughs> and uh, but... You know, I don't think there's much hope um, if I am not able to at least take, at least be able to be quiet like that. I think it's that important mm-hmm. and worth doing.
2: Um, you so as a uh, not, not to get too deep into your professional work here, but uh, I know you you do releases every once in a while. How do you um, how do you employ that that pause in in the business itself?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So. <clears throat> actually we do something kind of interesting and I I tried to model it sort of along the lines of, you know, the, the seventh day of rest, so to speak, we have this sort of annual release and I'm right now I'm in the middle of it. And I, I was telling, you know, some folks that I, as an eccentric engineer, I made this vow that I would not be cutting my hair until the release was <laughs> over. And it's not over yet. You guys have seen my hair. They, <laughs> listeners can't. But um, my hope is this week I will be able to cut my hair. But, you know, it doesn't look as bad. You look fine. I mean, ba- you ba- the hat, hat does a lot. The hat flattens it down. Um, <laughs> you should see it in the morning. You can ask, you can ask my wife if you're really interested. Um, but one of the things that we'll be doing in May, so this is after release, is Taking a month, basically, I you could think of it as a month off, but it's really sort of active rest, and uh, it's in an it's in an effort to sort of recap. I mean, because we're so burned out by this point, and just having my employees, you know, having a bunch of burnouts to then go right on to the next thing is is not a good long term investment in your people. So, uh, I think it's really crucial, and, and for me too, it's really crucial to. Take a month, take some active rest, and get a chance to behold. It gives you that opportunity to hmm. to sort of reorient yourself, be quiet, which I'm personally looking you know forward to, and some of these other these other orientations as we'll launch into to receive, to abide, to hope, yeah. um, to take that time to do. And and I think to me, a lot of it was taking the time to do something these these various things, but but you have to be intentional and take the time to do it. And, and that's the big struggle is we're all going a million miles an hour and we just in, in a vain attempt to, to get all these things so we can be happy. But but uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this time, this act of rest, uh, to be able to put some of the things we'll talk about in
0: practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and, and, you know, John's drawing on Pascal, who has that famous line. I think uh, I think I used it. My first sermon during the pandemic, I had that thing locked and loaded. It was then and used it then, where he says, Our our problem is we can't sit in a room alone. That's our problem. And uh, obviously, we were dealing with that during the pandemic. But Pascal's point is that we fill our life with these diversions, that's his word, you know, maybe today we would more, maybe call them distractions, but he sees that so much of our life is actually filled with busyness in order so we don't have to stop and think, because if we do that, that's gonna be painful, right? Because we're, we're striving all after all of these things for, for meaning and purpose and ultimately happiness, to kind of mask a deeper malaise and unhappiness that we have, and so I, I think hes he's really perceptive about something that can seem kind of dour or gloomy um, y- y- yeah <laughs> um, he's working out of this Augustinian tradition that can f- can feel like that but but he's actually saying what we're doing is we're hiding from certain realities like pain and suffering and death that are inevitable. And we don't want to think about them. But, but I think what he's getting at is if you actually learn to, to face those realities, those are things that let's be, let's actually be really rational about this for a second are coming are coming for all of us, right? Pain, suffering. Pain, These are realities. Um, and actually if I, th- I think the Christian life is this kind of learning how to die each day, in order so that we can truly live, so we can really have joy. So there's, again, there's this paradox by actually kind of looking at our own um, frailty and actually coming face-to-face with that and even death. It actually opens us up to, to really experience with gratitude the gifts of life and to behold um the gifts of God and really to find happiness. So even though that might sound that kind of <laughs> negative and I, and I grant you that it does, it actually, again, there's this paradox that it really is what Jesus was teaching in order to, to, to truly flourish in order to live. We must die. I mean, that's, that's the call of the gospel. That's the sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. you know, in this paradoxical way, this is how you find happiness. And I, And I would just say, Seth, the way you started off this conversation, when you said, you know, I was living for myself and I got married and had kids. And by the way, like that can be a very kind of sanctifying thing because now you're called to actually, you know. Sacrificially give, Mm -hmm. and I would venture to say you've sacrificially given to your family more than anybody else, Mm -hmm. and through that, you've also found the deepest joys. Oh, absolutely! So it's not through just like kind of me, 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 but the, the deepest relationships are the hardest ones that you have to give the most of. Um, and 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 there's something about the fabric of the universe that's built like that that's the Christian claim. Mm-hmm. And so, um, to find happiness, you die, you give of yourself and that's where ju- true joy is to be found. Um, and then we obviously see this modeled in the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ, um, who came and died and gave of himself. So, I, I mean, I, I think this kind of the gospels really etched in to the human heart here, um, and, and etched into reality.
2: One thing that I, um, was curious about when, when re-listening to, to this series and in this talk was the, um, the variety of words that we use to describe this sense, right? This pursuit, this, uh, um, yeah, the, the following after these, these feelings or, or um, yeah, s- sense of, of happiness, um, Seth, you, you didn't say this word earlier, but I was thinking it as you were talking about what what is true fulfillment, right? Fulfillment or, or contentment. I think uh, John gives us a phrase in here somewhere about the um, yeah the the kind of joyful contentment uh, that we pursue, and then those those four practices: behold, receive, abide, and hope uh, are you know, what he offers as a biblical version of that joyful contentment. Mm-hmm. Um, what um, do you feel in your own life that there there's a sort of difference between fulfillment and joy and happiness or do they all sort of get uh muddled up in the the uh all all that happens in your life you know work family yeah uh, friendships
3: etc and a little of this goes back to kind of what i was saying about the absolutes i mean yeah there's lots of stuff that makes me happy um for me i i enjoy playing um my playstation 4 i don't know about you josh but uh, that that, no, that doesn't no. think, you know, I, didn't, I didn't think but so he, but so, FIFA? he already <laughs> knew that no I'm, if i yeah. i should say playstation 5 at this point i just can't get one yet they're not available. <laughs> um, but uh yeah there there are various things in in life uh like i said that uh, that make me happy for a moment in time um and, uh, you know, make me glad that I'm, you know, um, pursuing a, a good career or I'm doing the hobbies. You know, I happen to my hobby happens to align with uh, my career itself, which brings me joy. Uh, does it bring me fulfillment? Uh, not 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 the way that my uh, family does. And maybe some of that does go to you're giving yourself to other human beings. And I think that's probably more impactful. At the, I mean, to watch your kids grow and and feed off what the things that you're you're showing them, you're instructing, them, you're making them hopefully better versions of yourself hmm. and your that brings you joy to see that. Mm-hmm. And as well as, you know, sort of, um, you know, John brought up uh, something about the 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 older couple sitting quietly in silence. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought about that uh, because my wife and I are we're both introverts and but we are extremely comfortable with each other in that way. I mean, in a way that, you know, you, you know, some couples aren't, they can't really sit there and not feel like they can't have something to say or else something's wrong with the relationship. We don't, we don't have that. I feel like we've, we've got a, a slice of that. And I thought, you know, there, that's a level of contentment and fulfillment, you know, just to know that you have relational things like that. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I do see, I do see big differences. Uh, happiness, I guess the way that it's typically defined, is a little more fickle and just sort of doesn't last very long. Yeah.
2: That's what I was wondering about is, is, is there a, uh, um, yeah, happiness as we, as we hear it or talk about it in the world has a certain sense around it. It's a, it's a, a thing that feels false or, or can be, can be falsified. And I'm thinking about as, as Christians, um, Obviously, the, like Josh, you mentioned the, the pursuit of happiness. Th- th- that's a good thing. That's, that's a, a, a driving of the human heart. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about it in my own life also. When I seek fulfillment rather than happiness. Um, what's good, What what's uh, different about that, what patterns of my heart uh, are, are different when I'm pursuing fulfillment, rather than just the the fickle thing in, in our world that we call happiness.
0: So you're, you're using fulfillment in a kind of deeper way that's beyond circumstances. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think, again, I mean, like, usage, uh, usage of words, or, I mean, meaning of words is going to change over time. And this is You know, why you have different Bible translations and you have updated because, you know, the word happiness often conveys something for people that is when they start, you know, they want to make distinctions between happiness and joy. And I think that's fine. I think if you're you're what I mean by happiness is what I mean by joy is and and, Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I think for our purposes, what we're trying to get at here is. A happiness that is beyond simply circumstances, or a joy that's beyond just some circumstances. And so so you can be um, and this is where it gets tricky with how we often use happy. And this is so I see why you're wanting to bring in fulfillment or something else, because you could be mourning. You could be lamenting Mm. and still have a deeper contentment or fulfillment um, because uh, I'm going to do it. uh, I'm going to go to Augustine here, (laughs) but because you're happy in hope. Mm -hmm. Yes. You're happy in hope. And what Augustine, he uses that phrase because he says, listen, you can have true happiness here in this world, but it's not but it but it's this but he's kind of he he has a, like a little asterisk beside it because it's only happiness and hope because you believe in the resurrection because you believe that every sad thing will come untrue <laughs> right and God's redeeming everything and then you can but but you're still mourning and you're still it's like you're opened yourself up to experience reality, which means both joys and sadness. So you can be both deeply sad and yet at the same time have this and be flourishing and be deeply fulfilled versus if you've just filled your life with diversions, it's like an anesthetic, Hmm. like you're numb and eventually you won't really be able to experience true joy. but because you're using those diversions to kind of numb yourself. All right. And, and so it's like, if you played, you know, nothing wrong with playing, uh, uh, you know, whatever. I don't even know the
3: PS5, whatever. No, no. Xbox. I'm
0: so old now. I, I, I I'm four
3: years older than you. No, 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 no.
0: I meant like, I feel so old is what I mean
2: to You have an old soul.
0: Uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh, like, I feel so old. Like, I mean, it's like pop culture references. I have no idea anymore. So um, it's like, I should know this. Right. Um, and so. So so, if you play that all the time It, it numbs you right to, to reality There's nothing wrong with With that as a hobby that you do sometimes But if you're playing it all the time You you actually It like numbs you up to To experience true joy mm. and, and maybe that's Again this is Pascal He would say because you don't want to actually Deal with reality Because that would be too painful You don't want to deal with the fact that you're not ha- as happy as you're portraying yourself to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think that's why Pascal is such a um, he says, a, I think, insightful and he gives us an insightful analysis of the human heart that's so relevant for us today, because for Pascal, it was, you know, gambling and hunting for us. You know, oh, my goodness, the toys we have. Oh, the careers. Uh, It's like you can go be whatever you want to be. And on some of that, we can say, oh, yeah, these are good gifts. These are these we can celebrate in these in various different ways and be grateful to God for them. But at the same time, we can we can use them as diversions as well.
3: Well, and I thought uh, uh, this is absolutely right. And I I thought another interesting thing was about how you're, how the things that make you happy are sort of a moving target all the time mm. right so it's exhausting but you're never going to be happy because you're always chasing you're always switching what what it is your your individual pursuit of what it is that actually makes you happy so it's just sort of i think he describes that uh, john describes that in kind of detail but uh It just sounds like um, I think you use the greater your resources, the further down the rabbit hole you can go, Mm -hmm. Um, which was, you know, uh, very true. So clearly there clearly, I mean, something that kind of the higher level, there can be no fulfillment without God being God centered.
0: Well, and I I Um, think once the pursuit of happiness becomes the kind of standard. Is the kind of standard mode of operation for a culture, this in this almost hedonistic type of way pursuing happiness then what happens is if you're not happy you're a loser Mm -hmm. right so it's it's like oh hang on so i winning means i'm happy which means i you know and john was bringing this up it means i better not only have this stuff but I need to show everyone that I'm actually happy. So make sure the Christmas card is really good. Make sure, make sure the, the uh, you know the Instagram is beautiful pictures. Makes because because I need to show everyone else that I am winning. I am happy and we're good. God. Oh goodness. And what does that do to the gospel message? What does that, what does that do to everyone else when we're in this game to show everybody, you know, look, everything's great. We're really happy. But then, you know, we're unable to take off our mask and say, actually, life is not what I expected it to be right now. And I can own that. Mm -hmm. This relationship isn't going well. Um, to be able to be vulnerable is very hard when you adopt this view of happiness, because if you're vulnerable, it's admitting to everyone that you're not at the top, you're not winning. So it, it's not just the pursuit of happiness, it's happiness as success that we've embraced, I think. And, as, and the big, and higher up you go up economically and socially in, in, in our culture, the bigger the importance
3: of that. Um. Yeah, now you're making me feel bad Because I liked the game of life Remember that? Yeah With the spill spinner and Yeah Your whole goal oh, yeah. was to make your car with Bring the kids along Get more kids And send them to college And get all the way to the end well, To the that, mansion at the end And that
0: was my goal, Seth I uh, make you've you feel done, bad Because you liked well. the game of life <laughs> you, You've on. done well
3: <laughs> I now feel just
0: If you're a local to the Triangle area of North Carolina in your mid-20s to 40s and interested in the discussions like the one you've been listening to, we hope you'll consider applying for New City Fellows, the discipleship program of the Center for Public Christianity. You can find out more by going to the Center for Public Christianity's website.